Welcome back to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Knox, how you doing? Great. Yeah. All right. Um, how's your week, man? Anything exciting happened? Well, there's something exciting that I just wanted to go through quickly that happened to me yesterday at school. So for oh, those okay. of you that um, haven't been following, I'm a at this time a high school math teacher. And here's what happened. So all of my students seem to know me and love me, and there's not a problem with them. Makes sense. But sometimes kids wander the halls and see their friends in another class, and they come in and talk to their friends, which is what happened yesterday. This one kid came in, and he talked to some of his friends in my room, and he was sitting there talking. And all of a sudden, I heard him say, I hate gay people. Mm -hmm. Yes. So he was sitting there. And so I walked over to him and I said, I heard you say you hate gay people. And then he said, yeah, I hate gay people. And if I found out that my brother was gay, I would shoot him. Oh, geez. And then I decided, huh, what do I do? What'd you do, Derek? I looked him in the eye and said, hey, I'm gay. Mm-hmm. And then this is the funniest thing. He said, no, you're not. He said, no, you're not. That was he his said, report. No, you're not. Kids are so stupid. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. And then he looked at me and I said, yes, I am gay. And he's like, and then you got this whole different look on his face. Were any other kids present? Yes. Your whole class? I mean, I don't think the whole class heard this interaction, but uh -huh. the kids around him did. Right. And then then one of his, his friend in the class said, that's why you, I told you not to say that here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not to say that here, got it, okay. Yeah. Um, or I don't know if he said not to say that here, but that's why he said, yeah, don't say that. And so, and then he just, I, and I think it changed the interaction, obviously. We didn't have much of a conversation past that. Later I circled back and talked about other, you know, small talky things like whether he likes the school and how his classes were going. Right. But he liked me to begin with, which is, and here's the thing about coming out is it seems like I was taking a risk and it seems like I was making myself vulnerable. But in a sense, I'm not afraid. I'm actually more afraid of the closet than anything anyone can do to me. Mm. And I think that changes the dynamic. And you know, the the real ultra radical queer activists, mm -hmm. they've changed some of the, the dynamic around coming out. Instead of talking about coming out, the newfangled thing is inviting in. Inviting in? Inviting in. I'm not familiar with this. So yeah, it's probably most gay people aren't. But the new thing is, so the old method is, coming out implies that you're hiding something that everyone else has a right to know. And then you finally are honest about it with the whole world in this one big announcement. Okay. Which, which actually has happened for a lot of people that way. But I think the inviting in model now says, well, you may or may not have a right to, to this. What it is is this is my story. And if you have done the work to show that you can handle it and that you're going to do it, I might invite you in to my life ah, and invite you into having this knowledge about me. Got it. Got it. So I think it changes the dynamic from, oh, I'm hiding something from you that you have a right to know, to, well, if you do the work and I choose to invite you in, I will invite you in. And you can choose to accept that invitation or not. Mm. Um, and I think that there, there is power in coming out, but there also is power in, in inviting in. Yeah. Um, and it just reframes like who's, 
who has the agency and the control and the the, the, the narrative, how it gets constructed in this, so this mm. inviting in. So there's a sense in which I chose to invite him in. I didn't have to. He had no right to, to that information, but I chose to invite him into that part of my life. Mm. Uh, which I've never done before with a student that's a complete stranger. Like my students who have gotten to know me, obviously they've gotten to know that I'm gay, right? Yeah. You know, they have actually been paying attention a little bit to me. <laughs> so, so that what what do you think about this? I actually was going to ask again, uh, or ask the question: Why did you feel safe to invite a stranger in, like a student who is a stranger to you, somebody you didn't know? Why did you feel to invite him in? Well, why weren't you afraid of that? Part of my calculus was a he's not going to do anything to me. Right. B if he does, uh I'm still more afraid of being in the closet than I am being myself. Mm. Right? Willing to, you know, count the cost which I think is highly unlikely. But two, I think the biggest thing is making a difference in someone's life because our interaction up until that point was like oh this is some cool chill teacher who the kids really like and he saw that very immediately and so right. he liked me and then and then i think bringing just a little bit of dissonance into his framework to mm. to be an sort of an epistemic wedge that changes what a reasonable person can know in the room is important mm. And he may not he may not have ever seen a respected adult who was safe being out as gay. Mm. Um, he may not have people close in his life. Well, if if he has those particular attitudes, which may not are not even really his fault. Right. That is something that we all absorb from our surrounding cultures, and and he, with that perspective, he may not ever have anyone close to him. That's say feels safe coming out to him, mm. and so I thought, well, here's a place where I can interrupt the narrative, right, and help. And oh, I forgot to say, when 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 uh after he said when I said it the first time that I'm gay, he said, no, you're not. Yeah, I said, <laughs> yes, I am. The other kids said, well, yes, he is. So <laughs> that was kind of funny too. So there was a little bit of tension breaking yeah. alleviating the sort of gravity of the situation and i think overall i handled it as best as i could i was not afraid at any point right i i did think it was well this isn't something that has ever happened to me before mm -hmm. but i thought well, that's that's interesting it is interesting i really like that you disrupted you disrupted the narrative and claimed it for yourself as far as what and who a gay man is and who he's allowed to be and you pretty much put this guy on notice that somebody that he respects is gay and now he has to kind of sit with that like this right. is something that uh, Ron Stallworth the black clansman was famous for doing he he dealt with a lot of bigoted white folks who weren't necessarily who were more who he discovered were more ignorant than they were hostile. Like they were mm -hmm. hostile because they were ignorant and he would often put them on notice where he would say things or make intelligent statements or release tension in a way that says your idea is wrong, but mm -hmm. 
but that's okay. Now that your idea is wrong, do you see why this particular course of action that you're pursuing is problematic? He was very good at doing that in a way that disarmed people without making them feel defensive. And yeah. I think that's what you did there, which is, uh, which is really cool. And not an easy thing to do at all. So I'm very impressed with how well you handled that situation. And further, that your students were there to kind of help in that effort to kind of yeah. dissipate the tension and also sustain what you had said. And the other thing is, maybe I don't change his mind, but I need to change the room. Because without saying something, what it looks like is that um, it's not possible for a gay person to be out and to feel safe. But mm -hmm. I can change the whole room by saying, look, I am not afraid to be out. Right. And I think that example can help. Well, what if there is a closeted LGBT kid in the room? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard you say that before. You can't change other people, but you can change the room. And then it sets this precedent that, no, this is a place where gay people are safe. Right. And safe to come out. Yeah. And I think I think that does change the the room, especially in terms of the way the kids reacted to that. Like, oh, it's just the most normal thing in the world that Mister Knox is gay, mm. right? <laughs> and it is because what yeah. would be weird is if I showed up straight one day, then the kids would really have a fit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they would have like a fit. They would, that would that would be unnormal, you know, not normal. Mm -hmm. So let's just move on to to our other news. And I and actually have a curveball of my own, Derek. Uh oh, yeah. So, um, I told you I had a new calling, right? Yes. Yes. So, uh, this past Sunday, I was sustained in my new calling. My new calling, by the way, is liturgical arts specialist, which basically means I fashion whatever art I, pr I you know, want, whatever art medium I want into a form of worship. For example, one of my first projects is going to be to put on a presentation or performance of some kind of the book of Revelation. So I've decided to do a dramatic reading. I'm going to recruit a couple of guys from the quorum to uh, do a dramatic reading, another guy to compose the thing, and maybe I'll have a little choir in the background with some soft ooze or something. I don't know. Ooh. <laughs> Nicely done, Derek. But um, that's basically my calling is just uh, using the arts to help people get more involved in the experience of worship, physically speaking. So that is, that is the calling. It's an elders quorum calling. Now, this Sunday, I was sustained. Mm -hmm. You know how that process works, right, Derek? Yes. Yes. The Elders Quorum president will get in front of everybody, uh, announce the calling and who's getting the calling, and then call for a sustaining vote. All who can sustain Brother Jones in this new calling, please manifest it. Everybody in the room raise their right hand to the square. And then he says, all opposed, manifest it. Guess what happened, Derek? Did you oppose? I did not oppose. Oh. But somebody else did. Someone did? Yeah. Somebody else wow. did. Wow. I got opposed, Derek. I got opposed. And nobody in the room knew what to do. Like, I don't even know what the protocol is for this kind of thing. And um, I don't think it was tense because I didn't necessarily think in that particular moment that this had anything to do with me. You know, liturgical art specialist is a different kind of calling. Yeah. And somebody did ask him to explain what that calling meant prior to my sustaining. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And um, but still, we went ahead. They sustained me. And then somebody opposed my calling. And I assumed that because it was somebody I didn't know, like I saw the person who opposed the vote. I didn't know that person. I never spoken to them like in my life. Like I've seen them around yeah. church, but I don't know that person at all. 
Did so, you find out the reason why? I did. I'm going to get there, Derek. Give okay. me a second. Give me okay. a second. So, like I said, I thought perhaps this gentleman... Just had, didn't like liturgical arts? Yeah, or perhaps he didn't understand the calling or didn't see a point to it. I thought, if anything, he would have had an issue with the calling, not with me, because, again, I don't know this person. We've never had a conversation. What problem could he possibly have with me? Yeah. You know? So, um, anyway, we kind of blow over that, you know, uh, they say we're going to address that later. And uh, apparently the elders quorum president and that gentleman, they had a conversation later and I get a call from my elders quorum president to kind of one check on me. That was the first thing he did. I made sure I was doing okay. And then secondly, just kind of let me know what the course of action was going to be moving forward, which was that I'm still getting set apart this Sunday tomorrow. So, you know, that's still happening. But also he uh, provided a little bit of clarity as far as what was going on there. Turned out that this young man who opposed my sustaining had an issue with me because of some things that I had said on this podcast. Oh. Yes. Yes. So like um, at that moment, it made sense to me as to why he might oppose me. Now, I don't think I've said anything on this podcast that has been overly inflammatory. Obviously, if obviously I professed my affirmation of LGBTQ saints and the place I think they should have at the table. And I've also been critical of our leadership, you know, but I've made, but I've also made clear that I sustain them and that my queer affirming is very much grounded in Mormon theology. So I don't feel like that should be a cause for anyone to, to, was that his problem with you? I don't know. Like, again, like I don't know what the issue was. He didn't, I don't think he specified specifically what I, sorry, that was redundant. I don't think he specified the things that I said that he takes issue with, but I do know that, or I'm at least 90% sure that his issue with me stems from something I said on the podcast. I did a little digging as well, by the way. I looked him up on social media and I saw that his most recent public post came just two days after our first one-star review, which was in the same vein. His most recent social media post was basically the same thing he said in that one-star review. Uh-huh. Yeah. And also given that uh, he probably was still listening to the podcast at that time we did that episode titled Make It Make Sense, where we basically kind of clown the dude. He might have been in his feelings a little bit. And I admit, I was kind of petty in that particular episode. That's part of my aesthetic. And it was very cathartic for me to do that. But at the same time, dude might have gotten his feelings hurt after that episode. I don't know. I really don't know. But uh, this is all to say. Wait, so you're telling me this one-star reviewer is here in the Boston area? I thought he was like some, some random dude off in the Intermountain West I thought somewhere. so as well. I thought so as well. But like I said, I didn't know this guy, so I had to like do some research on him because I was thinking all kinds of things. I was thinking, why would he oppose me? What is the issue exactly? What kind of member of the church is he? Uh, if he's bold enough to do something like that in public, what else is he bold enough to do? Like, do I need to talk to this guy? Because immediately I felt maybe I should talk to this gentleman. Like, maybe if I was able to address his concerns directly, perhaps this won't be an issue in the future. He can sustain me and I don't have to have that awkward experience of seeing him at a church and being like, you oppose me in front of everybody without explaining yourself well, to me or anybody else. I, I I can't tell you how to feel, but my theory is if you're being opposed, you're actually doing the Lord's work. 
I agree with you, Derek. I and agree with that sentiment. And you should feel glad that you are causing enough of a disturbance to, to get in trouble for it. I agree with that sentiment. And believe me, I'm going to wear this thing like a badge of varner. I don't take this at the least a bit personally in terms of I don't feel any less worthy or any less Christ-like or any less uh, Mormon because of this young man's opposition to my sustaining. I, I, I don't. When it comes to his practice of Mormonism, and he is uncomfortable with my brand of Mormonism, and that's ultimately why he opposed me, is because he didn't think I was Latter-day Saint enough. I didn't sustain the brethren in the way he felt like I should sustain the brethren. I don't believe in the doctrine the way he feels I should believe in the doctrine. I just feel like there's a lot of rigidity there, and he doesn't think there's room for somebody like me in any kind of leadership calling or position in the church. I just want to say one thing about this, and yeah. I don't know him at all because I don't even know anything about him other than what you just said but mm -hmm. my assumption is that of the people that are going to have a risk of leaving the church one day he could be one of them because if he has such a narrow set of expectations about what this could be and such an inflexible and rigid approach to this thing that means one little thing is could make the to... whole thing fall apart absolutely because it is so brittle yeah, it's not durable. It doesn't actually accommodate anything new. Mm -hmm. it, he's gonna like find something on the internet. Yeah, and like it's gonna blow his world away, and he's not gonna be prepared for approaching it with maturity and nuance and yeah. skill and experience and wisdom. Like if he can't handle you, he can't handle like ninety percent of our church history. Mm -hmm. Like. Like calling you as a liturgical arts specialist, like in the grand scheme of things, is not at all a controversy. No, it's we've not. had actual controversies in our history. Yeah, that if he, you know, he, oh man. Yeah, I worry a little yeah, bit. If your interpretive framework, if your theological framework is that narrow, just that is going to spell trouble when you actually come across something that mm. is a real scandal or, or a real controversy or a real theological or cultural dilemma with the church. So yeah, man, I, I worry. But at the same time, I'm just like, I'm moving forward anyway. I'm still getting set apart tomorrow. Like this ultimately is not going to affect me, but yeah, I, well, at least I hope it doesn't affect me because uh, my primary concern about this whole thing is that I'm not going to be able to talk to this guy about this at all because he clearly feels threatened by me. And if he feels threatened by me and I challenge his challenge of me, <gasps> you know, he might do something. You know what I'm saying? Just this. I talked to my mom about this the day it happened. She was like, don't meet him one on one. Don't even meet him with a third party. He might shoot you or something like that. Like if he feels threatened by you. You can get lied on or you can get hurt. And I'm just like, yeah, you're probably right. I probably should not. Well, maybe I should meet him. I want to have a conversation with him. Yeah, maybe you should, Derek. <laughs> maybe you should. Um, and let me know how that goes. But, uh, yeah, next time you come to uh, the mid-singles ward, I'll point him out to you. And you can have some words. And I think the key here is now what did everyone else in the room do? Like, or not just in the room, but later on. Are they going to support you? Are they going to rally around you? Are they going to be your ally mm. and tell this dude, no, we don't do this here? See, this is... Um, That's the key. That because is the key. That changes the whole room, right? If, if people uh -huh. support... Because you can't prevent random people from coming in and doing the wrong thing. Yeah. But you can say, we don't... That is not acceptable. Yeah. I will say that uh, people came to me after this whole thing happened. 
you know, people asked if I was okay and people asked what that other guy's problem was. Like I'm fortunate in that I have cultivated such a reputation in, in the Charles river and the Longfellow park wards that people did not hold me suspect. They held the other guy suspect. My eldest corn president checked on me. He did not. And you know, he checked on that other guy as well, but he also did not hold my character or my testimony in contempt you know what i'm saying he didn't hold me suspect nobody held me suspect except for that one guy and i think that's a good starting point and the other thing about this is not only is he opposing you but he's also opposing the people who have the stewardship and discernment to call you right right to say there's something wrong with them right and uh there's there what he's doing i think is is uh it just doesn't make any sense to me yeah, I mean, perhaps he's, and you know, this is the part I respect. I respect anybody who has the conviction to, you know, op- oppose somebody, I guess, or has the conviction of their own beliefs to actually do something about it, because not a lot of people would do that. Anyway, that's all I need to say about that, I think. I got opposed. Yay. Something I didn't think was going to happen in my lifetime, but also something that was kind of inevitability with this tech I've chosen. Right, but I, I think you can take pride in the cross because that's that's exactly what happened to jesus he got opposed he got killed i hope you don't get killed but (laughs) but (laughs) i hope you participate in the path of christ in such a way that people are gonna get their comfort disturbed this is what christian discipleship is at the end of the day like uh it's going to face opposition it could put me in worse trouble like christ legitimately broke laws so that mm-hmm. he could do work among do work among the marginalized and i don't think that's ever going to happen to me like at worst i could get excommunicated but even still that's not going to stop me from coming to church that's not going to put me behind bars it's going it's not going to take away all of my privileges like i can still i can still worship you know what i'm saying so yeah and i think some of these excommunications will suffer from the streisand effect Oh, yeah, the Streisand effect. I know what that is. Yes. Because of Derek, actually. (laughs) Because, like, if you excommunicate someone, everyone's going to look at, like, oh, why did that person get excommunicated when they're just some normal dude going about their day? And then they're going to look at the issues. They're going to look at you. They're going to look at the church. And it's going to make the church look bad. It's going to make the the state president look bad to excommunicate you. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just, it it actually solves, it, it causes so many more problems yeah. than it solves when you just excommunicate people who are sincerely in good faith doing the best they can to do good in the church. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of which people trying to do things in good faith or trying to, you know, hold the church accountable yeah. or whatever else, I think it's a good time to transition to the news and talk about crystal. Can you tell us a little bit about that story, Derek? So what happened was, it was a it was a few years ago, I think. Um, Crystal attended a, a session of General Conference live, mm-hmm. and I think it might have been during the sustaining of the. It, it was at some point they shouted out, um, "Stop protecting sexual predators!" Mm-hmm. several times, and they uh, their voice resonated throughout the whole conference center and it this was, was during conference during conference and it was picked up live and uh-huh. everyone uh heard it yeah and they w- were arrested afterward i think mm-hmm. and charged with a crime 
um, not just a civil of- offense against the church, but a, an actual like secular crime. Yes. Okay. Yes. Disturbing a public meeting or something. Yeah. And their trial happened just this past week, and they were convicted and sentenced to probation and, and a, a fine of some hundred, several hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I just wanted to point this out and think about well, where's Christ in all this? What would Christ do? Mm-hmm. Like he talking about disturbing a public meeting. Look at what he did in the temple. Oh yeah, like he caused enough of disturbance that that everyone around him was tempted to kill him. Yeah, like uh, it's it's you know he he wasn't always. He was always good, but he wasn't always nice. Mm-hmm. And I think Mormons tend to get those confused. Yeah, big time. Because, um, uh, well, anyway, so that's kind of, and I just wanted to think about this, like what, now, I don't think I would have done what they did in General Conference. Probably um, not. But I think, here, well, here's what I would have done if I if I were on the stand conducting the meeting and I heard someone call out from the audience something controversial like that what i would have done was i would have gotten to at the microphone i said hey come up to the microphone i will give you five minutes to say what you need to say to the whole world Mm -hmm. and i would have called them up let them say what they need to say and then and then take that time out of the meeting now here's why i would have done that because it completely flips the script the way it looks is like we as a church, we have something to hide and we don't want to hear, we don't want people to hear our dirty laundry. Right. Where I am over the point where like whatever is hidden is going to be made light. And th- if there's a problem, you come up here and I'm going to show that we are not afraid to call out sexual predators, which if there's anything that's Christ-like in the world, it's protecting children. Absolutely. Protecting the most vulnerable and most um you know, defenseless people in our society, which yeah. includes children. Yeah. Like if there's, if there's anything that's Christian in the world, it's like protecting kids. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's what I would have done. Um, and because the, the person that's having this problem probably won't actually be prepared to have, you know, to speak for five minutes in front of the world, and they'll, mm-hmm. it will, it will, sh- sh- but it, what it will do is show my character, right? Right, because I can't control someone else, but I can show my character and say, look, I am not afraid of accountability. I am not afraid of addressing the issues. I, and I think what the church did in pressuring to prosecute this individual actually is shows. A member of the church, by the way. Um, I think they were at one point and either left. Or they were excommunicated. I'm not sure. I think they left the church, mm. uh, but but they're yeah. I th- I think that's the case. And here's here's the real problem is is not what Crystal did, but it's this that that it's set up that the only way Crystal thinks they have a voice is to do this. Right. What I would do if I were the church is I would set up this big bureaucratic office of complaint receiving. Like if you have any problem in the church, you you uh, send your complaint into this office and we will take it seriously. And the leader of this complaint office would be in meetings every week right. with, the, with the first presidency and the quorum of the 12 right. so that 
they know what's going on on the ground. Yes. Because if there were a forum, forum where people could have due process and get their complaints heard and actually taken seriously, it won't end up on the news. It yeah. won't end up plastered on YouTube. It yeah. won't end up because there would be an outlet for it that 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 will be a better outlet, right? And this tells us that whoever the bishop was of, I'm sure there's a personal tie that Crystal has to this. Surely, someone they know has been a victim yes. of. That's that they've they've mentioned this. That was they the know, catalyst. Okay, they know so, people who have been abused by someone, yes. and then their abuser was reconciled with the church and rebaptized, and all of this was pushed under the whatever. And so there you go. The bishop knew. The they, stake they, president knew. Yeah, someone took the wrong side. Right. That's why they went to conference to like address this whole thing is because they felt this was the only way they could get it out. As you said, the bishop knew, bishop didn't handle it. Stake president knew, stake president didn't handle it. They got to go all the way up to general conference to make sure their voice is heard, and that is a problem. Right. So, yeah, that's kind of get gets back into our theological view because if we look at the scriptural narrative, no leaders are perfect. There needs to be checks and balances. Yeah. There are checks and balances in in our texts. And and I think without without that, you end up having an unhealthy situation where the only place you can, because all this, all these problems are going to come out somewhere, right? And if you don't give them an outlet to come out and actually address them in one place, then they're going to come out with people yelling in the middle of general conference. Mm-hmm. And we'll have nobody to blame but ourselves. Or people yelling opposed during general conference. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway. So I don't know what to do about about this. <laughs> Not really an us problem at this point in time, but uh, you're right. Something does need to be done. Some system does need to be put in place so that these incidents don't need to happen or that somebody doesn't feel like they have to resort to shouting in general conference just for their voice to be heard. I'm glad you brought that up, by the way. Mm-hmm. Anything else we want to say about this No, case? not about this. All right. Let's move on to the other piece of news that happened this week. The church released a statement on feminism in the in the new era. Now, let's see. It's a relatively short statement. It's only about four paragraphs long or so. But it talks about the church's stance on feminism, talking about how men and women are different, how feminism can mean different things to different people, how it can mean just this idea that we ensure basic human rights to and fairness to women, as well as efforts to encourage women to obtain education and develop talents, etc. But how feminism could also mean, in certain philosophies and social movements, extreme ideas that advocate things that go against the gospel, and it touches on that as well. Before we get too much into our own thoughts and feelings about this particular statement, Peggy Fletcher Stack has a great article and a collection of reactions of women to this statement. We have that posted to our Facebook page and we'll put it in the show notes as well. But if you want to see how all kinds of women are sounding off about that, then you should check that out. It's in the Salt Lake Tribune and it's titled LDS Church Issues New Statement on Feminism. Now, I've noticed that this particular statement is pretty ambiguous. It doesn't get into too many specifics about what 
what equality looks like, what good feminism looks like, and what quote-unquote bad feminism looks like, and therefore does very little to to uh, advance the conversation about feminism. It does little more than give us a source we can point to and say, oh, this is what the church thinks about feminism. But the, the thing that sort of I want to say is a lot of these church statements that come out, you know how some people have ambitions. They want to be, they want to be a bishop. They want to be a stake. They want to be an apostle. They want. I, I don't want any of that. If I had any job in the church that I get to pick, I would love to work the, for the public affairs department. Department, because I think that way I can do some real good in a very particular way. And most of these statements that come out from the church, I hate to say this, but they can be ambiguous or they can be very wide tent where everyone no matter what their perspective is can use that as a pretext for their view because yeah. you can have ultra feminists that, that look at this text from the church uh, the one that just came out and find uh, stuff in there to support their view and then you can have anti-feminists who can look at the same text and say look this is this part of feminism is bad and this is bad and this is all bad and 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 that's problematic because if your statement doesn't actually discriminate between what's our view and what's not, yeah, it doesn't actually state anything, right? And I, we've I've had this problem with the church's statements on racism before, where racists can find themselves acknowledged in the text and say, "Look, that supports us." And I mean, if you're if that's the if your anti-racism statement isn't strong enough or clear enough to make the racists not see themselves in that text then it's not it's not succeeding. a real statement it's not <laughs> it doesn't a statement and um and were you thinking about that statement by uh, a purposeful wife like yes to, yeah the whole just, yeah how do you like at, at on one side i feel like the church was specific enough in that statement they released following her racist tweets but that she was still able to like pick that apart and be like, see, anti-whiteness is a problem. I'm just like, mm. yeah, y'all learned your lesson. Y'all got to be more specific than that. I would have hoped after that they would have learned to be more specific when it comes to um, anti-racist work, anti-misogynistic work, and you know, queer-affirming work or whatever, mm. the, whatever the case is. But uh, you're totally right. This just wasn't specific enough to really, to really say anything about what feminism is and what kind of like what we sanction what we don't sanction it just it's too ambiguous and i I think a similar thing is true with the race in the the priesthood essay from 2014 absolutely or whatever year it was like it still doesn't outright condemn or it still doesn't outright uh say that the priesthood ban was not a divinely instituted thing which was my biggest beef with it i'm just like when, when I first heard about the essay, I'm like, yay, finally, somebody's saying something about this. The church is finally saying something about this. But the fact that the church doesn't say, or rather that the words that they use in the essay basically say, we don't know what the cause of the ban was, that still allows people who affirm divine intervention as part, or sorry, the people that define or people that believe in divine authorship of the ban are still able to say, well, this doesn't deny divine authorship. Mm-hmm. So we have to embrace that as a possibility. I'm just like, no, like the church needs to be more specific about that kind of thing. And uh, that, that I, I feel like that le- just leads to more problems and makes the people who are actually on the margins, in this particular case, black people and women, 
feel more ignored because these statements ultimately do yeah. nothing to advance their cause. What they don't do is good boundary maintenance. They don't clearly draw a line that says this is us and this is not us. Right. Because everyone can see themselves in the us. Mm-hmm. Even with this feminism statement, I found stuff that I really resonated with. Like some usage of the word feminism is okay and acceptable in the church, which I think is a progress because Boyd K. Packer wouldn't have said that. Mm-hmm. Now we can at least use the F word in church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and identify as a feminist and have some institutional justification for that. It uses words like equality and basic human rights for women, which mm-hmm. um, which our church has been a leader on, like in the 19th century with suffrage. White women got the vote to U- in Utah. I noticed yeah. I said white women got the yeah. vote. 150 and, yep. years ago. In Utah ago. before all these liberals here on the East Coast did. Mm-hmm. So that we've got some... Uh, obviously it's not perfect, but we've got some potential here to work with. Um, and and so there's good things in that statement, but then there's also things that even that word equality could get in, construed as, well, separate but equal. About and we say. know how separate but equal doesn't <laughs> work. And there are people that are saying, like in this Peggy, Peggy Fletcher Stack article, actually someone noted that uh, you know equality doesn't mean sameness, and that's just a whole other conversation. We need to have a conversation about what equality means if we're going to mention it like you said just not and they didn't have anything like about around equality of opportunity equality of power equality Mm -hmm. of access all that they had equal what does equal mean equal worth equal Mm -hmm. whatever i don't know unless you actually draw the line it's uh uh, it doesn't do enough it doesn't do it but so i can't really say that this statement is a good statement i can say that parts of it will be very useful Mm mm-hmm uh, but then in parts of it could be useful to the other side too. That that's anti-feminist. Yeah. One thing they they called out the uh, and people in the article noticed this is they used some outdated language for what they were calling out on the paragraph about men. Things oh like yeah. Like sexism and chauvinism. They didn't call out um things like patriarchy. Mm-hmm. They didn't call out things. Um, like benevolent sexism, which mm-hmm. is very, very prominent in the church. You know, putting women on this pedestal and and taking care of them and being provider and protector and like putting them in this pedestal situation, which which look you know sounds like it's positive to women, but it actually just marginalizes women and says, "Oh, you're just a different kind of creature than men, and you need your own thing." Mm-hmm. I would imagine, though, that this is the closest that the church has gotten to saying anything about toxic masculinity. Like, they've used words like uh, chauvinism, machismo, and other cultural influence that would cause men to think and act in ways that are not in harmony with with the gospel teachings of respect and love and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, modesty, chastity, equality. There's, there's just... I, I do want to cite the positivity in that but you're right that uh, there's a bit of outdated language that's used there and some more things mm-hmm. that could still stand to be named with and regard to questionable behaviors that men would exist yeah in the and even think virtues like modesty and chastity can be weaponized against women absolutely and that wasn't named in the text right so yeah i would love to hear more women's voices uh on this if there's nothing else for that bit of news then uh, is it cool if we move on to the Come Follow Me? Yeah, let's move on to Come Follow Me. All right. Before we do that, though, if you guys are interested in more news, 
The Mormon News Report podcast covers the week in Mormon news with a, he- with a healthy dose of snark and commentary. Join Brant and Jenny every Monday to get caught up on all the top stories you need to stay up to date on the top stories in Mormon news. That is the Mormon News Report podcast available on just about every streaming platform. Okay. So for this Come Follow Me, we're in 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 15. Uh, a little bit of background on it. This is the part where Nephi gets a, gets a vision. He gets the vision of the tree of life that Lehi uh, has received, and he learns about the Savior's ministry, condescension, uh, the future of his people, the destiny of God's work. So that's basically these five chapters that we are going to be reading and studying for the coming week. Derek, where would you like to begin? Well, I think I want to begin with just talking about, everyone talks about this iron rod, but in the Book of Mormon, there are several different models for navigate spiritual navigation. There's the iron rod, and then there's the liahona. All right. And a lot of people, and Richard Pohl in the 1960s made a, sort of a big classification about this, about some saints are more like iron rod saints and some are more like Leahona saints. Okay. What was the guy's name again? Sorry. Richard Pohl, P-O-L-L. Um, but the thing the thing to note is how those, those are different. When you have the iron rod, you have the whole path laid out for you. There's only one right way. Um, if you fall off the, the rod, there's no rod to help you get back to the rod mm-hmm. um, and everyone takes the same path but the Leahona uh, it seems to work like GPS that no matter where you are it will point you towards your destination or towards the next where you need to go at that point in the journey mm-hmm. and I and the other thing about that is that the, the the whole path isn't set out in advance because it needs to adjust just like the GPS recalculates mm-hmm. That's how the Lord leads his people sometimes. Mm. Just look at, you know, the lost 116 pages, the one, you know, the golden calf incident, the rejection of the the scouts that looked into Canaan and said, we're too afraid of where you want to take us. So we're going to, and then God's like, okay, I'm recalculating. It's going to be another 38 years before <laughs> you get into the, I mean, that happens. Right. That has happened so much in our church history where we're going one way and we mess up and God's like, okay, we're going to recalculate. We're going to. Recalculate. And the iron rod doesn't recalculate. Mm. If you fall off the rod, well, you, you, I don't know. There's no rod to get you back to the rod. You're basically lost forever. You're lost in the midst of darkness. So I just want to hold out that there's both of these in the Book of Mormon. And some people want to take this iron rod in a very dogmatic way and say, you know, you see where I'm going with this, right? I believe so. But um, and but I like the idea of the iron rod being the word of God because I think the importance of the scriptures is prominent in my life. Um, nece- it, it should be essential for all of us to cling to the word of God and actually break it open and see what's there. Mm. What do you think? I'll admit I haven't thought about the differences between these two models because they seem to be two different metaphors of understanding the same teaching. One that says, follow God's word and you'll make it back to him. The tree of life vision says, cling to God's word and you'll receive God's love. The Leahona says, cling to God's word and the way forward to the promised land will be shown to you. 
The way your poll explains it, though, I see the value of highlighting this particular difference in imagery because if one doesn't seem to understand from the vision, the tree of life, that the way forward is available to folks regardless of where they're at on their spiritual journey, then the model put forth by the Liahona will certainly help. Yeah. That actually uh, segues uh, pretty well into the first thing I wanted to highlight, which actually occurs in the first verse of chapter 11. Now, what I like about this is that it sets, um, it, it says something about our relationship to leadership and personal revelation. I'm just going to read verse 1 in chapter 11 real quick. It says, For it came to pass, this is right after Lehi relays the uh, vision of the iron rod and the tree of life to his family. It says, And it came to pass that after I had desired to know the things that my father had seen, and believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me, as I sat pondering in mine heart, I was carried away in the spirit of the Lord into an exceedingly high mountain, which I had never before seen and upon which I had never before set my foot. So there is something to be said here about uh, personal revelation. One is that we don't simply rely on what we hear from our leaders. Nephi sought his own personal revelation when he received uh, guidance, when he received a revelation from the prophet. Now we also learn that uh, he desired to know the things and he believed that the Lord could make them known unto him. And that motivated him to pray and motivated him to ponder. And that is how he gained his revelation was basically acting on the revelation that he received from his father, from the prophet of the church at that time. He sought his own. And not only did he receive revelation, we have learned so much more about uh, this, this uh, vision of the tree of life and the spirit actually opened and interpreted the dream to Nephi as a result of mm -hmm. him seeking that revelation. So there's a lot for us to learn as members of the church from uh, the, the pattern that Nephi has demonstrated here. When we receive uh, counsel from our leaders or when we receive revelation from our leaders, we can come to a deeper understanding and knowledge of it by seeking our own revelation on those same subjects. I like that Nephi didn't just take Lehi's word for it. Like he does mm -hmm. say later in this chapter that he believes the words of his father, but he wasn't content with just believing those words. He wanted to understand them. He wanted to receive his own revelation. He wanted to receive his own witness. And that made his knowledge and that made his testimony so much richer. The things that he learns, the things that he learns about the future of his people, the things that he learns about the condescension of Jesus Christ, like these, th those two things alone inform so much about the actions Nephi is going to take for the rest of his life. And he wouldn't have received that if he simply was content to only receive the word as he received it from his father. The fact that he sought his own revelation on the very things that his father had uh, relayed to him made his understanding so much richer to the point where his practice and his, the way he lived into that faith was so much richer and deeper than as it would have been if he just left it at what he received from Lehi. Right, and I think Nephi uses those personal experiences as a springboard for when he talk about when he talks about the Bible and when he goes on to say a oh, Bible yeah. Bible we've got a Bible there can be no more. He's actually saying, look, how can you be tent with, content with just a fraction of God's word when there's more and right. and I think that's kind of uh, exactly what he went through in his own life because absolutely the details he got in his apocalyptic vision fill out and complete and expand 
what you got from Lehi. Big time. And we're going to see that in chapter 13 when uh, we learn a little bit more about the, uh, you know, what happened to the Bible and why Nephi felt as strongly as he did about, um, about receiving more of God's word. We can move there now if it's convenient, unless you want to say any yeah, more I about Yeah, I just wanted to talk a little yeah. bit about the sort of apocalyptic genre to be in general. Okay. So the word apocalypsis is a Greek word which means uncovering, to take the cover off of something. And uh, the Latin equivalent is revelation, which is to, to take the veil back. Um, and what, in a, in a sense, that's an uncloseting. It's a, it's a coming out of sorts because there's something that's hidden that's now then brought to light and now you unveil it. And that's exactly what happens in apocalyptic literature. You typically have some type of um, tour guide, either an angel or some heavenly intermediary who comes to a person, gives them this vision, and you roll back the veil that's covering something, and then they get to see either a journey into heaven upward or a journey forward into the future, and they're Mm -hmm. able to see things that are normally hidden from view. And that's really exactly what happens here um, with Nephi. You you have he has this vision um, of this alternative world. He gets all of this information about the future. There's a lot of intense symbolism here. There's a lot of prophecy about the future. There's catastrophes, judgment, dualism, good, bad. Um, then there's a determinism about like oh this is going to happen and this is what. I think that's you get um, of course a lot of this apocalyptic language in in revelation and the oh yeah yeah Big but time. also daniel is the prominent example in the hebrew bible about this and you get some in isaiah and zechariah and then here you get it in nephi where you have an in heavenly intermediary who comes and and guides nephi on this vision and i want to connect that to my own coming out journey because well that in a sense i'm i it is revealing something uh, that has been hidden or un- unaware to something, and it, and it just breaks open the whole thing. And I also want to connect this with the condescension of God, because here you have in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ coming to this world, taking upon himself human mortality and making himself vulnerable to the actions of others, which is kind of what I did in my classroom with the, st- st- uh, the student that wasn't even my student. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something important and and uh, cruciform about that, cr- cross-shaped. Okay. That part of privilege and part of real godlike power is giving up that power yeah. and making yourself vulnerable um, to others. Mm. And I think that is. Like, let me just find Nephi's words exactly here. And real quick, the type of what you, that cruciform that you talked about, that's a type of what you would have done in that crystal situation and also a type of what you ended up doing in uh, that classroom. You made yourself right, vulnerable. Right, right, exactly. If if someone ob- objected in the middle of the thing, I would have I made myself vulnerable, made my institution vulnerable and said, get up here and talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's something beautiful about sharing power. That's exactly what his condescension is, is God is sharing power with us. Mm-hmm. And as a teacher, that's I, ideally what I'm trying to do is shape people into functioning adults. Mm-hmm. And unless they unless I share power with them, they're never going to learn that. Right. 
And I think that's what God does with us, trying to get us to become celestial adults and, and develop. If, if we're spoon-fed everything, yeah. there's no development. There's no learning of initiative or responsibility. But I love what Nephi's language is here, where he says, this is First uh, uh, Nephi 11, verses uh, 16 and 17. This is right after the, vi- the vision of the Virgin Mary. And he... Um, the angel said unto me, Knowest thou the condescension of God? And I said unto him, I know that he loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. Mm-hmm. Now here's, this is a good line. If you're trying to be an ally and someone puts you in a tight spot and you don't know what to say or you don't, you don't know what to say in a certain situation or you don't know how to whatever, um, that's something you can say, like you can say, well, I don't know that, but I do know that God loves all of his children. Now that's not ideal in the end, but if you are in a tight spot sort of politically or socially and, and someone's confronted you and you need an answer and you, you can't say the right thing at that time, you can say, well, I don't know, but I do know that God loves all children. Mm-hmm. And that's better than saying something homophobic or saying something that's not quite right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'll be able to get to that and do the other work at some point. Mm. And ter- speaking about doing the other work, I'm I'm almost toying with this entire year flipping the script and reading the entire Book of Mormon from the perspective that the Nephites are, quote, bad and the Lamanites are good. Because the, the narrative of itself leads us to have some, some hints of that. And... Um, all we've got is the Nephite side of the story. And I think it would be very interesting to, to think about, well, whose voices are not there? Who benefits from the voices as they are? And what reading between the lines can we see? Because in many ways, God recalculates in the promise that eventually um, is given to the Lamanites was originally for the Nephites. The, the ne- Nephites are the ones that are destroyed. Many of the villains in the Book of Mormon are Nephites like Gadianton and many of the heroes are Lamanites like like the anti-Nephi Lehi's and Samuel the Lamanite and mm-hmm. I'm like wow this is actually very interesting the, the Nephites were given these promises and they couldn't keep them and God really wants to frustrate and disrupt some of our generalizations about the Nephites and the Lamanites even within the text and even in the Nephites own words the consequences of the Nephites being the ones telling the story when the Savior actually shows up in third Nephi and then in essence asks, why aren't Samuel the Lamanites' words included? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And I can only imagine how awkward that conversation that, uh, you know, Nephi had with the Savior was. Be like, here's our records, but uh, we didn't Oops. we didn't include the words of the Lamanites and have Jesus himself be like, uh, why not? Yeah. Why aren't his words included? I don't know. But uh, that'll be... That'll be an interesting one. There's actually quite a great treatment of uh, this idea of, I suppose, narrative negligence in uh, a book called Race and the Making of the Mormon People by Max Perry Muller. You can actually find that book on Amazon probably, or I don't know where else you could find it, but there's quite a great treatment on that uh, issue in that book. If you're in the Boston area, I own it. You can borrow it if you want, so putting that out there. Is there anything else you want to talk about um, with, with, with regard to uh, Nephi's vision, the condescension, or anything else he sees 
in terms of how it affects his ministry from here on out or how it affects or how else it could uh, address or be likened to the coming out narrative? No, no, I think I just I'm kind of done. I could always I can always talk more, but I'm just, <laughs> I just I just want to hear from you. And, and we've already spent time. So I, I I've kind of wrapped up what I was going to say. All right. Um, I guess all I wanted to briefly address, I can do this briefly, is um, talk about the great and abominable church that is brought up in chapter 13. I believe it is. Let me just pull up this verse. That describes it. Right. You've got. So in chapter 14, verse 10, we learn that there are only two churches. It reads, behold, there are saved two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb of God and the other is the church of the devil. Wherefore, whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God belongeth to that great church, which is the mother of abominations now as members of the church if we are really dogmatic we might say that the church is the church of the lamb of god and that every other church is the church of the devil however after we read first nephi chapter 13 verse 5 which describes the great and abominable church which is founded by the devil we can see that elements of both exist even in our church we see that the churches spoken of aren't necessarily religions but ideas philosophies and teachings for example verse 5 says when describing the uh, church of the great and abominable great and abominable church it says which slayeth the saints of god yea and tortureth them with a yoke and tortureth them and bindeth them down and yoketh them with a yoke of iron and bringeth them down into captivity now, our theology paints a pretty clear picture of how we bring people to Christ. But can we see how churches as institutions have brought people into captivity, for example? Does that sound familiar? Have we ever used our sacred texts to bring people into captivity? Have our teachings yoked people by maybe telling them that authentic expression of their true selves was sinful? Has it tortured them by doing that has it yoked anyone by telling them that their skin was a curse from god that kept them from full fellowship in christ do we see how these ideas can be prevalent anywhere not necessarily outside the church but also in it and similarly i believe we can find the doctrines the practices the philosophies and teachings of god in places other than just our church if it brings people to christ than it is of the church of God. And we'll, we'll stumble across that idea again once we get to uh, the Moroni chapters. Right. I think uh, in the past, people might have wanted to see both of those churches as like visible institutions. Right. But I think they're both invisible thing, uh, invisible sort of worldviews that can be in any institution. Correct. We've got both of those, you know, uh, like people would have said, well, the Church of Jesus Christ, as it exists visibly on earth, well, that's the the good church, and then the Catholic Church is the abominable ones. But there's, there's, you know, good things in both churches, and there's problems in both churches. It's it, Both of those worldviews are present in all of these things, and that's the complicated yeah, thing. That is the complicated thing. Uh, so yeah, that leads me to one more thing I wanted to discuss, which talks about how plain and precious things have been 
taken away from the book that would be sent forth among the Gentiles. Um, let's see, I think this is in verses 26 through 29. So it says that this book, after, they, after these words of the book go forth by the hand of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, from the Jews unto the Gentiles, thou seest the formation of that great and abominable church, which is most abominable above all other churches. For behold, they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants the Lord of the Lord have they taken away. And then 27 does something really interesting that I haven't really noticed. I always knew that we taught that uh, the Bible as we have it is missing a lot of things than originally intended but 27 actually tells us why that has been done it's th these aren't mere errors of hand and eye though those certainly exist 27 says that this have they done that they might pervert the right ways of the lord that they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men last week derek you were talking about how a lot of the issues in the church aren't really issues of truth they're issues of power Mm -hmm. And one of the great motiv one of the biggest motivations of uh, the Church of the Devil, according to chapter thirteen, seemed to be uh, sexual immorality, seemed to be money, and seemed to be power and notoriety. That seems to be the primary primary motivations. So mm -hmm. I think that's just a really interesting thing that the Book of Mormon puts us onto is that pretty uh much as long as the Bible has existed, it has been corrupted for the benefit of people in power. Yeah, and I think that's kind of goes back to one of those feminist reading strategies of looking whose voices are not there and uh, looking yeah. who benefits from the voices that are there in the scriptures is mm -hmm. we're missing a lot of the voices of women. Yeah. We're missing a lot of the voices. Uh, um, uh, we're missing the voices of the Lamanites in, in mm -hmm. the book of Mormon. There's just all these voices. And so here we have a great foundation for saying it's okay to think about whose voices are not there. Right. And whose voices are left out. Yeah. And uh, which I don't, that's why I don't see myself as uh, somehow heretical or, or faithless or unorthodox. I mm -hmm. see myself as fairly orthodox because I'm taking this seriously of like, mm -hmm. we actually know that there are voices left out in the Bible. And that there are more voices that are going to come forth. Yes. Like in this very book of the Book of Mormon, we're going to right. learn later that we don't have all there is to be had when it comes to the word of God. Yeah, and I think sort of reading against the grain and seeing what uh, to what extent we can recover the voices and stories of women in the scriptures um, is actually a very Latter-day Saint thing to do. Very much, very much. And uh, one more thing that's worth, uh, that's worth mentioning, as a result of this corruption of the scripture, as a result of us not having and still not having the whole story, it says that... Uh, Okay, this is the end of verse 29. Because of these things which are taken away, and I would add because of these things which we don't have out of the gospel of the Lamb, an exceedingly great many do stumble, yea, insomuch that Satan hath great power over them. Stumble is quite an understatement. Since we got access to the Bible, Christians have not stopped arguing about what God requires for salvation and what qualifies as sin. The Bible has been weaponized to oppress women, people of color, and queer folks. In the church, we can see many of the troubling things that people assume to be doctrine, and we can see the troubling intent people read into the scriptures when specific doctrine concerning specific but important issues doesn't exist in our sacred texts. 
And when those in power exercise stewardship over these important but nonetheless imperfect tools, it's only natural and perhaps inevitable that their biases creep into how they read the text and administer to the church. And the result, as we've seen, can be policy that disenfranchises entire groups of people. That's why I want to get back to talk about one of the most misunderstood concepts in the church might be the idea of the, the quote, fullness of the gospel. Mm. Because a lot of people assume that that's a fullness of information. Like we have the facts and we had facts missing and now we have all the facts. We don't have all the facts. What the fullness is, it's not a fullness of information. It's a fullness of relationship with God. We are back Mm. in covenant. We are fully in relationship with God in a covenant way. Yeah. And that has been restored. That's the fullness of the gospel. It doesn't mean you know everything. It doesn't mean you know everything God wants you to know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of people's objection to uh, more information about queer people in the church or women in the church or people of color in the church is like, oh, we've got the fullness of the gospel. I mean, like, you've got, you, you know, you're all set for you. Yeah. <laughs> but but the part of this fullness of the gospel goes back to this Leahona as a GPS. The fullness of the gospel means, yes, our GPS is plugged in and God is leading us and we're in relationship. But that relationship is unfolding and ongoing, just kind of like when you start a marriage, you've got the fullness of the relationship. You don't know where it's going to go, but you have the covenant that binds you and you're together and you're secure in that fullness. Mm -hmm. You are satisfied in that moment with the person. That's the fullness of the gospel by analogy. Mm. And and then it gets back to kind of, well, what does that mean for the way we navigate the church? And what I didn't say was part of the reason for seeing the, these two churches not as visible institutions comes from First uh, Nephi chapter 14 when he talks about that there are two churches, right? And if he's talking about these two churches, well, that can't be visible institutions because there's many visible institutional churches. Mm -hmm. So it's not about a specific organization. It's a way of flowing in the world. One of them is abominable. One of them is noble. Mm -hmm. And both of those can be present in, in our visible institutions. Yeah, I like that a lot. And thank you for talking about that fullness of the gospel bit. I, uh, I mean, I've heard that before, and I think I've actually heard you discuss that before, but uh, in this context, it helps me make a lot of sense of how we approach Scripture, how we approach the practice of our faith, and how we approach just various other things when it comes to, you know, how we treat folks and yeah. how we approach religion in general, I guess. and. It- Part of the reason I say that is also to prevent people from being too fragile, because if you say, well, the, the Book of Mormon has the fullness of the gospel, well, no, it doesn't have all of the fullness of the information. It doesn't have our, you know, our temporal covenants. It doesn't have sealing. It doesn't have all this stuff in it. Right. Right. It's not the fullness of gospel can't be a fullness of information because there's so many things that are essential to our ongoing journey that were revealed after. And so Mm. the Bible also has a fullness of the gospel because when you look at the people, God's covenant people in the Bible, they were in a full relationship with God at that moment. Yeah. And that's the fullness of the gospel. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, That's all I wanted to say for uh, the Book of Mormon here. That's all I want to say also. All right. Wonderful. 
couple of housekeeping things. Got to remind you guys that we're a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, when can folks find us? They can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, and you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. That is correct. That is correct. And also, Derek and I, if you guys are in the D.C. area, we are going to be at the Black LD, the third annual Black LDS Legacy Conference in uh, Washington, D.C. at the Visitor Center. There's information that can be found on the Black LDS Legacy page on Facebook. There's also a website where you can register and get tickets. The event is free. You just got to register so we can get a head count. Uh, I've gone for the last three years myself. Derek came in the, inaugur- the inaugural year. Yeah, the first year. That was It was great. It was really great. It's a great event. It's not just for black folks. Everybody can show up, show up and learn something and uh, just otherwise enjoy the fellowship of the saints as we learn about the place of black saints in the gospel and also in the place of, I believe, what Derek and I will be discussing or hopefully paneling about at this event is going to be the role of uh, the gospel in social justice efforts. So definitely come to that. It's going to be a good time. It's going to be educational. It's going to be wonderful. Anything else, Derek? Nope, that's it. Other than thanks for listening, and uh, I I like feedback and questions and comments. I think people are afraid to reach out to me thinking that I'm so busy that I can't answer their questions. But you know that the thing I like doing the most is, in, you know, talking about the scriptures and engaging them and helping people find freshness and relevance. So, yeah. You I can. think it's because you're not very active on social media, Derek. <laughs> like, you should probably fix that, you know. I mean, I know you got a Facebook account, but you don't have... I mean, you're not on the Twitter. You're not on Instagram. Just people got to know how we they can reach us. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I should do that. We'll reach out to us with some of your comments and questions and let us know how we can be helpful. Awesome. We will see you guys next week. Thanks. Bye.